Amen. Good morning. I love that song that says, If God be with me, who can be against me? If God be with me, whom shall I fear? Let us go to the Lord in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you that you have gone before us, that you have fought the battle, and you have won the victory in our place. Father, we thank you that we have a kinsman redeemer in Jesus who has called us out of darkness and has brought us in to his marvelous light. And we say to these things, if God be with us and for us, then who can be against us? Father, we thank you that your blood shed on Calvary was sufficient to forgive all sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We stand before you today, Lord God, saying thank you. Oh, what a Savior. You are marvelous indeed. And we thank you, oh God, that you are our righteousness, that you are our banner, that we stand before you with boldness and saying thank you, oh God, that you have seen favor, you have sought favor for us to come into a relationship with you. And so we thank you this morning that as we begin uh, the preach word that you would be here, uh, that you would be in our midst, that you would go before us, Lord God, as we seek to know and understand you more through your preach word. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Good morning, Anacostia River Church. All right. My name is Asa Briggs, and I am a member here at ARC. And, uh, and if you are here for the first time and you're joining us, uh, we are wanting to encourage you to enjoy your worship service with us. And um, what we say here at Anacostia River Church, as as I said last week, is that we don't take ourselves seriously, but we take the gospel very serious. Um, If you're with us here today and you don't have a Bible, uh, there are some folks in the aisles that will come down um, and would be glad to give you a Bible. Um, I'm going to assume that everybody that goes to ARC has a Bible, but those of you who are our guests, if you don't have a Bible, please consider this as our gift. Um, And so if, if you would, please raise your hand and... Folks will come. I think there's one sister in the front. Um, All right. Amen. Well, this morning, we are concluding our series on becoming a trauma-informed congregation. Um, We began this series on the importance of viewing trauma through the lens of the gospel. So you cannot view trauma through the lens of the gospel without looking first at the cross. Um, Last week, um, when you get this little country boy from South Carolina who's a bit in his nerves, I can tend to talk fast and don't want to slow down and want to hurry my point. But I think that this particular conversation really deserves that we slow down and we sort of think about the gravity of trauma and what it has done in the lives of our brothers and our sisters. So I'm going to endeavor this morning to slow down and, uh, and let us just come together as a family. There's nobody here but us, right? So we could just kind of hang out. And so one of the first points that I made last week was 2 Corinthians 7, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 1, 7 through 11. Um, And this verse will actually help us to frame our time together as we walk with brothers and sisters um, who experience traumas of various kinds in our congregation as well as our community at large. 2 Corinthians 1, 7 through 11 reads, Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, 
of the affliction we have experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raised the dead. He delivered us from each. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will deliver us again. You must pray, you must help us pray by your prayers so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Let us pray again. Father, we thank you, Lord God, that you are our deliverer. Uh, that the name of the Lord is a strong tower and the righteous run in. So we thank you, Lord God, that in the midst of suffering and that in the midst of affliction, you are our hope. And so we rest in that, Lord God. May our hope forever be in you in our times of trouble, in times of deep peril. You have delivered us before and you will deliver us again. And so we thank you, Lord God, that even if the deliverance doesn't happen on this side of eternity, Lord God, that we would stand as people of faith, unwavering, uh, full of the blessed hope that comes from your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Um, This morning, um, again, I want to take us back to last week. I think I talked a lot about SAMHSA, and uh, that's the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration. And SAMHSA helps us to frame what it means to be a trauma-informed congregation. And I don't know if you guys remember this, but there were four key tenets uh, that SAMHSA helps us to outline. And that was one is that it realizes uh, to be a trauma-informed congregation, it must realize the widespread impact that trauma has and the potential paths for recovery for our congregation. The second point is trauma realizes or recognizes or trauma-informed community realizes and recognizes the signs and symptoms of trauma in families, congregation members, in our communities. And then third, it responds fully by integrating knowledge about trauma into our congregational practices. And then the fourth thing is we we must resist to re-traumatize those who have come into our community with various traumas. Let me emphasize this. The goal of this series is not to make you all biblical counselors. That is way too big of a feat for me to do on a Sunday morning. But rather what I want to do is I want to bring to fore some of the core biblical principles that are necessary for individuals who are walking with traumas and sufferings of various kinds within our congregation. So this morning I want us to focus on the fourth um, tenet, which is to resist re-traumatization. So in an effort to comfort those, um, we oftentimes say things to saints and sinners alike that are well intended, but if we're not careful, those things that we feel like are bombs and things that we want to be Opportunities for growth are the very things that re-traumatize our brothers and our sisters. Um, I said last week and last time that we may not get but one chance to have an audience with an individual that comes through those doors that has suffered from traumas of various kinds. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to force those individuals back into foxholes because we don't know how to engage those individuals. So I want us to be careful with that. Um, And so to that end, we want to... Um, think about these as opportunities for these individuals to experience love um, and care that flows from the Father first um, and then flows from us to then them. And so to this end, Patrick Stephen, 
uh, helps us to develop three points that I want to emphasize to help us not to re-traumatize our brothers and our sisters. The first one is, is that theology is not a panacea for what ills the sufferer. Let me say that again. Theology alone is not a panacea for what ills the sufferer. And we'll be looking at Ruth chapter 1, verse 16 through 21 in Psalms 42. Again, that is Ruth chapter 1, 16 through 21 in Psalm 42. The next point I want to make is when walking with people through trauma, let's not treat our brothers and sisters as projects or unbelievers. We'll look at the case of Job chapter 2, 11 through 13, Job 42, 8 through 9, and Luke 13, 1 through 5. And then lastly, we'll look at Jesus as our blueprint and our hope during our time of suffering. At that point, we will examine the communion table, looking at 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 26. Our first point this morning in our sermon is that theology is not a panacea for what ills the sufferer. And before you guys boo me like you did at the family meeting the other night, just give me an opportunity to explain my thesis. (laughs) As I mentioned last week, (laughs) the implications of the fall were many, not excluding any part of God's creation. The fall not only revealed our spiritual depravity, but our emotional and our physical depravities as well. And the spaces and the circles that we frequent hold fast to theology, in, in particular the theology of the fall, the T in our tulip, in terms of total depravity. But the theology of the fall and the total depravity, it, while it bolsters our doctrine of election, it also holds the keys to understanding a deeper, having a deeper understanding of traumatized people in our communities. Um, Patrick Stephen writes, we are fallen creatures who have made it, who are wading through this fallen world, looking forward in hope for new creation, when the chaotic sea will disappear alongside the tears and the pain it produced. Let me say that again. Patrick Stephen writes, we are fallen creatures who wade through this fallen world, looking forward in hope for new creation, when the chaotic sea will disappear alongside the tears and the pain that produced it. As reformers, we can, we, we know our, we knows, right? We know that all things work together for the good of those who are called according to his purpose. We know that God is in control and that he's a sovereign God. We know that God tells us to be anxious for nothing, but in all things with prayer. We know those things, right? We hold fast to our theology. We don't have to go but to our various libraries in our homes and see the voluminous volumes of books about theology and our underpinning of our faith. But however, if we are not careful, we can use our theology as a means to undermine an individual's trauma experience, rushing them quickly toward a redemptive story. And so what we need to do is our understanding of the fall doesn't fix or fit into this nicely neat compartmentalized narrative, but rather it gives trauma and suffering a context. And so again, let me be clear, truth is important in the life of a believer, and especially when you're walking through doubt and suffering and pains and traumas of various kinds. But what good is truth if it is not coupled with its companion, love? And we see that in 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3. 
So I want to draw us, our attention to the cross this morning, as I talked about. You can't look at being a trauma-informed community without looking at the cross as our impetus for that. And so Christ's lament on the cross underscores the point that theology is not a panacea for the sufferer. The crucifixion of Christ was a scene marked by the most egregious trauma. At the cross, we see the trauma was so egregious that Christ yelled out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ was fully human and fully God. How we say it, he was 100 and 100. And was able to understand and discern the will of God fully. But second, and so second, Colossians 2, 9 says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. However, in the midst of his trauma, he asked the question, why? And for many traumatized in our congregation, in our communities, this too is their lament. So we want to acknowledge their pain in a way that says we hear your why and we are here for you, patiently moving them toward maturity where theology and love are in harmony. Patrick Staffan says that theology is not a math. Indeed, life itself is not a math. We cannot cram two numbers into a calculator and wait for it to spit out the answer. Trauma always contains an ounce of mystery. The why question, why did that boy have to be born into a family where his father beat him day after day? Why did that driver have to fall asleep at the wheel? There are no theological calculations that can spit out the answer. As badly as we want someone, sometimes all we can ask is why. We're often taught that asking why is sinful or it demonstrates a weak faith. We see another explanation of a why that went unanswered in the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth, we have Naomi, who has just lost her husband and her two sons. And she is trying to convince her two daughter-in-laws to return back to their homeland. Oprah, she, she went for it. Ruth, however, was like, nah, wherever you're going, I'm going. Your people are now my people. And so let's pick up in Ruth chapter 1, verses 16 through 21, because Ruth needs to be comforted in her sorrow. And I think Naomi helps us to understand that theology, albeit important, does not always equal comfort for the believer. In chapters, book of Ruth, chapter 1, verse 16 to 21, it says, do not, urge, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything, but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was staring at them or stirred because of them. And the woman said, is this Naomi? And she said to them, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Call me Mara. And the, for, the mighty, for the Almighty has dealt with me very bitterly. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me 
and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me. Ruth's response to Naomi teaches us that Naomi taught Ruth about the awesome power of God and his ability to save, and she also pointed back to the community of believers in which she had left. Ruth found comfort immediately in that theology. However, Naomi also knew that what happened to her came down from a sovereign Lord. However, her theology of the sovereignty of God did not comfort her immediately, and so she wept and wanted to call herself bitter. Patrick Stevens states, when we are confident with our traumas, confronted with our trauma, ours and other, theology situates us and reminds us of our hope, but it will never take away the pain of the present, and that is okay. Trauma can cause the sufferer to hold doubts and challenges of our faith. We see this in the Psalms that are full of laments and doubts in times of our suffering. Psalm 42 is a place where we see the psalmist express fear, doubt, and faith all in the same place. Psalm 42 reads, as the deer pants for the waters, O my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all the day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul. How would I go with the throng and be led in procession to the house of the God with glad shouts and song of praise, a multitude-keeping festival? Why are you cal- why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. My soul is cast down within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of Jordan and Haran, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep, at the roar of the waterfall. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and night his song is within me. A prayer to the, to the God of my life, I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why did you go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me. While they say to me all the day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. You see, the psalmist here opens up with a praise. Then he goes into a lament over his, Congress, his current situation. His adversaries are taunting him and asking him, where is your God? He's asking himself the question, why is my soul downcast within me? It is not because he is not aware of theology, as we see throughout the psalm. And it's not that his hope is not within God. The opposite is true. But here he gives us an explanation as to how trauma with his twists and his turns have an effect on our souls. But he did not let his hope wane. And so some of the application points here for us ARC is that number one, to become a trauma-informed congregation that cares well, we each need to resolve to be comfortable with the why questions people ask. And we need to resist rushing them to answers with the hope that we fix them. The second point is, to those living with trauma or have experienced traumatic events, it is okay to ask why. Jesus Christ himself did that from the cross. But like Jesus, we want to learn how to live through the trauma without getting stuck 
or trapped in our why questions, for we may never receive the answers to those questions. Point number two is when we're walking with people through trauma, let's not treat our brothers and sisters as projects or unbelievers. People in trauma are not our projects, folks. Trauma and its subsequent trajectory is not a one-size-fits-all. The sojourner must understand that people who suffer from trauma are not looking to be fixed, but rather to be loved and to be understood. Patrick Stevens explains that the Apostle Paul calls us to mourn with those who mourn in Romans 12, 15. He doesn't call us to fix them or to tell them the right answers in their sufferings or to ask them to get on with their lives. Sometimes there is no way to fix the suffering. In the cases of severe trauma, the memories will never go away as they are now a part of the fabric of a person's life. God can redeem those, provide agency and strength for the survivor, and bring good from the pain, but the pain from the past will always sting a little, or maybe even a lot. We see an attempt to fix a friend in trauma with the account of Job and his three friends. We see that the first seven days and seven nights, Job's friends seem to understand the complexities of trauma. Job chapter 2, 11, verses 13. Let us look there. Now when Job's three friends heard of all the evil that had come upon him, they came each from their own place. Eliphaz, the Tamite, Beldad, the Shuite, and Zelphar, the Namanthite, they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and comfort him. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was great. End scene. This is where the story should have ended. Right? You know how we do as fellas. You sit around, we just sitting back. You say something, no, bro, that wasn't me. I'm good, chief. And for seven days, Job's friend demonstrated that kind of deference and love for their friend. But then there was something in them that said, the calamity that you're experiencing, you got some explaining to do, right? And so one by one, they started to try to deconstruct this brother's suffering. It must have been some egregious sin that you were caught in. Right? This suffering doesn't look like that of a believer. So you must not have your faith and your trust in the Lord. Because he wouldn't have allowed for you to suffer in that way. Right? Man, you're lucky that something worse didn't happen to you. These were things, I'm paraphrasing, that Job's friends were saying in his suffering. They were convinced that Job had done something to deserve the suffering. The suffering. I mean, he was unrecognizable, right? As Job tries to plead his case, as most sufferers do, because we feel it necessary. And so from chapter 4 to chapter 37, they lay into Job one by one. And God patiently listens to their exchanges until chapter 42. And he decides to weigh in. And he says... My anger burns against you and your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. 
Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, the Tamite, Beldad, the Shuhite, and Zephar, the Namathite, went and did what the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayers. And we see at the end of these passages that Job's fortune was restored and his friends were rebuked. So your suffering friends are not your projects to be fixed or to be treated like projects, rather loved and supported. Be careful that your suffering friends also don't lead you on a sin hunt. Let me say that again. Be careful that your suffering friends don't lead you on some sort of sin hunt. Because if you think that God is only doling out suffering to those who sin, then that causes us to have some sort of self-examination as well. Let me say that again. If you think that God is only doling out suffering for those who are in some sort of sin, then this causes us to re-examine ourselves as well. And to that end, let's look at Luke chapter 13, 1 through 5. It says, there was some present at the very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you likewise will also perish. Of those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse offenders than all those who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Amen. So two, an application point here for us again is to be a trauma-informed congregation that cares well, we also have to be comfortable with silence. Refuse the temptation to offer explanations and theories. Sometimes silence is better than speech. Just commit to being there. Again, I'll say that. Refuse the temptation to offer explanations and theories. Sometimes silence is better than speech. Just commit to being there. Point number two is suffering should be a time of self-examination and reflection and repentance and not judgment. We see that throughout Luke 13, 1 through 5. And so just resist that. Sometimes people just need you to sit with them. They don't need a whole lot of explanation. Are you you trying to explain away their suffering? Just sit with your brothers and your sisters. And sometimes your presence is enough for them. All right? Point number three, Jesus is our blueprint and our hope during our time of suffering. Jesus is our blueprint and our hope during our time of suffering. We have a high priest who understands our suffering in every way. And we see that in Hebrews chapter 11. And one of the ways he demonstrates his love for us is through the communion table. And I'll read uh, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. For I have received from the Lord what was also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus Christ on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took up the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, 
you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Patrick Stevens states that one of the privileges of the pastoral care is to invite this image bearer to the table of her Lord and to give her the broken body of the suffering servant. In the Lord's Supper, God reminds us week after week that he knows how hard this world hits. He underwent enough pain, torture, and emotional angst to make the DSM-4 lose its spine. When we meet Christ at the table, our suffering and trauma are acknowledged. This understanding invites us to the table to weep with our Savior who wept over his suffering, sweat blood over his suffering, and cried aloud during his suffering. Christian, this gives us hope that we are not alone and that through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can find our justice. And I want to take this opportunity to share the gospel with you. If you are here and you do not know Jesus, and you hear about the pain and the suffering, I want to be very clear that my suffering is not what demanded a repentance. Let me say that again. A suffering that I endured and have endured did not bring me to a knowledge and an understanding that I needed a Savior. My sin did. And so somebody's going to have to pay the penalty for sin. Either you are a sufferer in the Lord or you are a sufferer in the world. Somebody has to give an account for that sin. And praise be to God, our Savior and our Lord, that he exchanged my suffering and my sin for his righteousness and for his salvation. All right? And so, but for me, where I find my hope in suffering is that my suffering has an end date. The sufferings of this world pale in comparison to the glory that shall be revealed to me. And I don't want to whitewash that, but I want to bloodwash that. Right? So I can suffer. And on my best days, I try to suffer well. And there are times when I do not. But I know that my suffering has an end date. And so I'm encouraged by that. So I know that God is taking me from faith to faith and from glory to glory. And he's making my joy and my faith complete in him. And as my sister Kaylee Walker said the other night, she says that sometimes when you're suffering, all you can say is that, I may not have a good or a solid faith, but I know that I have a God who is strong and who has faith as well. And so he who started that work in us, he's given us that faith, right? And so in our sufferings, we can find our hope in a God who gives us the gospel and a God who says, I'm going to start this work in you and I'm going to see it through unto completion. Paul Maxwell states this. He says, many of us may not feel ourselves running into glory, but limping and others crippled and carried, Mark 2, 4. But take heart, Christ himself refuses to forget the scars of his earthly pain, even in glory. I see a lamb standing as though it has been slain, Revelation 5, 6. Christ is the one who brought and signifies the breakability of the chains of death. We may not feel the full weight of that hope today, but we will one day. Both Stephen and Maxwell quotes are excellent and encouraging. I'm struck by how they suggest to us that our stories of suffering are caught up in a larger story of suffering and redemption, and that is in Christ. Instead of our stories being isolated without context, Christ has taken up our suffering into his own, not in a way that makes everything neat and tidy. So Christ's trauma does not, find, does not mean our own ending of trauma and suffering but our own trauma and suffering finds a home a context a sympathizer who in the end will wipe away every tear from our eyes 
and will end all trauma forever. Having our story inside his story gives us hope. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your blessed hope in the life of a believer. Father, we thank you and we, we are reminded that in that while we were yet still sinners that you sent your son to die for us, that our traumas and our calamities were many, but that our story finds its home and its context in your story of suffering. And that doesn't guarantee that on this side of heaven that all of our sufferings will fade away, but that we hope in our eternal glory, God, that we will see you, we will see our faith be made sight, and that the why questions that we held on to uh, here on earth, Lord God, would soon dissolve like snow in the presence of the Almighty God. And we can see you face to face, and we'll be free from the chains of this world, free from the bondage of sin and slavery, Lord God, to live in the abundance of grace and mercy um, that we find in you, O oh God. So, Father, I pray that as we are endeavoring to become a trauma-informed congregation, let our sights be set on you and let our sights be set on loving one another as Christ has demonstrated that love for us in our brokenness. Father, we hasten the day and we long for the day when you come and you return and our traumas are no more, more and our sorrows cease to gnaw and nag at us, asking us that question, where is your God? But we can hold fast to that faith, Lord God, and we can run with endurance, Lord, until we see you face to face. So we love you and we thank you. In your son Jesus we pray, amen.